G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas, uncomfortable conversations with me, Josh Seps. What a great episode today. The first ever two-hander with two guests at the same time, the Academy Award winning and Emmy winning producer, Emil Sherman. Uh, Emil is the mind behind such hits as the classic Australian film Rabbit Proof Fence, uh, Lion with Nicole Kidman and Dev Patel, Power of the Dog, uh, Jane Campion's film Top of the Lake, her television show, and The King's Speech uh, with Geoffrey Rush. He has a podcast of his own with his cousin, Now, his cousin is a South African who has a doctorate in psychology and spent years as a leader in the fight against apartheid before building reconciliation in South Africa. And their podcast is called Principle of Charity. It's an attempt to bring together people who have different points of view with a view to finding some way to have conversations that are free of bullshit and that extend the maximum amount of generosity towards one opponent's ideas. Does that sound a bit familiar? Does that sound a little bit like what we're trying to do on this show? Uh, This is a fascinating insight into their lives, their experiences, and the big debates that really underpin the philosophy of this show and uh, what is needed, I think, at this point in time, at this sort of cultural flashpoint. I hope you enjoy as much as I did, and I'm sure you will, this conversation with Emil Sherman and Lloyd Vogelman. Whenever I'm interviewing, uh, like, Academy Award winners of Mm -hmm. your caliber, Emil, I, like, have to start talking about that and that project. How many Oscars do you have? One Oscar. Just one? Well, one Oscar for me. Lloyd, what's he doing? I know. What am I here? Ask him how many nominations he's got. How many many Academy Award nominations? Well... The win and two nominations for additional first. Yeah, you don't get to count the nomination. You don't get to count the nomination that ended in a win. So three nominations. Three nominations, a win, and then you know for the projects, it was you know the power of the dog was an amazing success story for us and for Jane Campion and twelve nominations, twelve for the King's Speech. And you want to count all those personally, so 24? Well, as the producer, you, you sort of um, potentially can legitimately count everything as being... Wow. It's all about me. Is that, That's what I'm saying. Lloyd, the, the Golden Globes. The Ordo- the Ordo- <laughs> what about all the other... Oh, is, you, like, I'm <laughs> helping you globes. here. Come on, ask the him about the globes. Golden Globes. The Golden Globes are a joke. What about the BAFTAs? The Golden Globes are a ask joke. Ask him about the BAFTAs. Mm. What about... Uh, well, why don't we stay with the Academy and go to the, uh, the Emmys? Have you been nominated for Emmys? Have been nominated for Emmys, yeah. What was that for? Um, and we won also an Emmy for The Power of the Dog for Best Actress. How do you uh, get an Emmy and an Oscar Moss. for the same project? And I won an Emmy for State of the Union, which is a short-form drama that Nick Hornby wrote. Oh, right. Yeah, best short-form drama, so I'm halfway to my EGOT. But wait, how do you get an Emmy for the same project that got an Oscar? Isn't it either you're a movie or no, you're it's a, a TV different one. show? No, um, State of the Union. No, different. but you just said for Power of the Dog. Uh, sorry, Top of the Lake. Top of the Lake. Different Jane Campion projects. Both Top Jane the Campion. Lake. They they can they right. interchangeable in yeah. my brain because <laughs> I just have an image of Jane in my head. <laughs> so the, the King's Speech is the uh, is the Oscar win. Correct. And how did that project come about? 
it was really the start of my company Seesaw and it was one of the first projects that came across our desk, me and my partner Ian Canning, he's based in London, I'm here, we'd worked together on a project called Candy before, an Australian project, and started up this company and uh, someone, uh, yeah, a, a producer who had come across the script, um, Gareth Unwin, had approached me and Ian to see if we want to produce with him, he needed more experienced producers and we joined forces and that was the film that really changed our lives. And am I, mis- am I remembering something correctly or was it apocryphal that someone dropped the script physically at Jeffrey Rush's home that was, to get him to read it? That, that was right. Yep, yep. Who was that? Who did that? That was Gareth. Right. <laughs> uh, from memory. Um, and, and he just sort of left it on his doorstep in Sydney and was like, yeah, you should read this because yeah. I'm, I'm having too much trouble going through your management or something. Or I don't even want to have well, to Well, then when we joined, I'd worked with Jeffrey before on, on Candy and so... Um, you know, it's, it's sort of we had stronger connections there. But, you know, you do what you have to as a producer, you know. You're a hustler. You're a rustler. You just got to get it together. Um, you heard cats, all the analogies. But, uh, and it worked. You, know, you just got to make it, try to make it happen. And was it surreal when it uh, – I mean, you say it was sort of your first big project. So then it becomes – did you expect that it was going to be sort of a, a nice independent art house movie and did it then blow up beyond your wildest dreams or did you know that you were sitting on gold? Well, a lot of companies passed on it. At the same time, we knew it it could have been good. It could have been big. But I don't think we had any idea of what big meant. Like I went from producing, you know, international theatrical art house movies like Candy, Disgrace. Um, uh, I was involved in Rabbit Proof Fence. To suddenly this film that, yeah, since then, I thought if my career is just a slow downhill from the King's Speech, I'll be very happy. <laughs> and it hasn't been a slow downhill. It's well, I haven't been, won two a, Oscars. It's been so a slow been... uphill, should we say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned Rabbit Proof Fence. Uh, when did Lion happen? Lion was probably about six years ago from memory. That was after the King's Speech. Yeah, that was after the King's Speech. And that was also nominated for a bunch of Oscars? Yeah, that was a... You know, that was something we were really proud to have done, a film that was, at the time, the biggest English independent film of all time and then the biggest Australian independent film of all time. Are you counting it as both? No, Lion, King's Speech and then Lion. And we were an English-Australian company. Right. So, you know, you don't get many opportunities to make a film that is based in the country that you're in, if you're in Australia or even England that really can travel and be so international. There yeah, are not many that's stories true. that come around. There aren't that many British films and Australian films that win Oscars, are they? They go all, all the way. They're yeah. more English stories because of England's great colonial history. Mm. Um, <laughs> so they brought their stories forcibly to the world outside, whereas Australia, you know, trying to spot the story that has the oomph to be able to carry internationally and then has the talented director and writer and cast who are going to be able to, I guess, stand on the world stage. Um, metaphorically, is is really hard. It's what we try to find all the time, and occasionally it works. Most of the time, it doesn't. And well, most of the time, it doesn't for everybody. Uh, the difference with you is that sometimes it does work. Sometimes it does. <laughs> it doesn't have to work all the time. No, uh, you know, the first line of your obituary is still going to be, uh, you know, Academy Award winning. Those are and the, the one good words. thing with our industry, there are a lot of structural difficult things because if something works. You then wake up the next day and find something else that you hope works. It's not like you've built a, an ice cream business that people just keep coming back for the same ice cream. Mm. But the ones that, let's just say, don't meet everyone's expectations are more quickly forgotten than the ones that <laughs> exceed that, people's that expectations. Yes, that's right. That is the forgiving thing about success, isn't it? People do notice success more than failure. It's more yes. visible. 
it's more visible until you blow up, um, you know. Uh, and crash and burn. And or, crash and burn or, yeah, or cancelled yeah. or whatever. Yes, but, right. But largely in our industry, yeah, you, you're, you slog it out. Each project is a new startup. And genuinely, it's a new startup business. You've got a new company, special purpose company. You've got research and development costs with the script and trying to put it all together. So you don't, you can't rest on your laurels. They say as a producer, you're only as good as your next project. Mm, mm. Um, the door opens for a lot of financiers to our calls and our, our offerings. But if they don't like it, they don't do it. Uh, but at least they remember our successes more than the failures. <laughs> what do you remember of, Oscar's, of Oscar night uh, for the King's Speech? Well, I've been at three quite, for me, quite extraordinary Oscars. The King's Speech was notable because... It was the moment that, that we won and it was just so surreal because it was all just so far beyond anything I'd imagined or my partner um, in my company, Ian Canning, had imagined. And do you remember who you were up against that year? What were the big films? The Social Network. Wow. Which was a really incredible ride because it was winning everything. It won the Golden Globes. We sort of bombed out a bit at the Globes. It won all the Critics Awards. And then we won the Producer Guild of America Award. And that was meant to be the sort of talisman of... of, uh, of of the, it's the beginning of the award ceremonies where the voters of the 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 at the um, Oscars are the same some share some of the same votes. Right, the where you're guild, sort of not amongst your critics. peers, yeah, not just reviewers. And, and winning that night was was the beginning. But then we were at um, Lion where they read out the the wrong winner. La La Land won. Oh, until, that was that one. That was that one until they I remember that. I was in LA at a friend's place watching that, and we were, our jaws were on the floor, on the floor as it was happening. It was beyond. And then, the, so the power it would of the just dog. remind people uh, La La Land was the favourite, but Moonlight, which was this indie production about a gay, yeah. um, sort of an unrequited gay relationship between two black Americans, uh, was the surprise winner. But there was some mix-up where the, the wrong envelopes were there and someone read out uh, La La Land. Absolutely. And the La La Land people sort of came up and came then up and Jimmy Kimmel had to come out and say, sorry, sorry there's actually been a mix-up. It's actually Moonlight. What, did you, what were you thinking? It was, you know, our draw dropped like everyone around the world. But, you know, we sort of, you just don't know what to think. And then the same or, you know, different but similar thing happened with the power of the dog with the slap. Uh, right, and we were there, and you were there. again going is that was particularly strange because I think there was a big difference between being there physically and what you saw broadcast around the world. It felt like, you know, thankfully I don't live in a world where, and most people don't, hopefully in Australia, where where you you come across physical violence that often you don't see people whacked in the head, and. We knew it just felt like there was violence in the room and something really terrible had happened, but we couldn't quite work out what exactly had happened and what it meant. But the whole room just turned very sour and very dark for the rest of the evening. And, you know, it wasn't a, a great night for us with The Power of the Dog. Um, Jane Campion won Best Director, which was extraordinary, but we were the favourites um, till close to the evening. But for the poor Coda winners who won amidst this, uh, you know, really horrible um, attack, it was it was disappointing. And did you know as it was happening that it wasn't a bit, a comedy bit? No, we didn't know. We didn't know. Except, as you know, just there was a smell that something didn't feel right. It didn't – you couldn't put it into a box. 
because it looked like a punch. And just to clarify where you are at this point, so you're you must be sitting quite close to the front because yeah. Power of the Dog is is yeah. pretty much the favourite to win, yeah. and so you're presumably about yeah. to. You've got your speech written. You're ready to get up there and and get receive your second Academy Award. And when Will Smith gets up there, what's your perspective? on it, what are you able to see and what do you well, think is going like on? Well, it looked like he sort of bolted up to st- stage and it looked like he punched Chris Rock, but then Chris didn't really respond as you would to a punch. And so we thought it might be a bit, but then it clearly wasn't a bit. And then it, the, the sort of yelling that happened afterwards, the aggression, we couldn't work out what was going on. I think same as everyone, but it felt like something it felt like something disturbing had happened. Well, obviously, it jinxed was. the whole night because then you didn't win. All imagine because of that. All imagine because of if he behaved if he himself. If he behaved himself, oh you'd God. be sitting here as a two-time Academy Award winner instead of just once. And then, the, so just take us back to, before I leave the Oscars, that first night when you're there, and it's your first time at the Oscars when the King's Speech is yeah. nominated and you've flown over from Sydney yeah. for it, well, I guess. I, I lived in with my wife and my kids. We had three young kids at the time we moved to new york we were shooting a film called shame um in new york at the time and there's this thing there's the award season it's not a night the oscars it's the culmination of about four months of ongoing awards and the publicists involved the studios involved it's basically a presidential campaign or they treat it as though it's as important as a presidential campaign and they some of the publicists representing the studios used to work in politics you know running presidential campaigns so it has this energy of award after award and a sort of media uh, st- strategic power play that that leads up to that one night and the minute the oscars are finished everyone goes boom gone and they disappear and it's like <laughs> see you in eight months time and the whole show starts again yeah fantastic and do you remember the sensation of them re- uh, who was reading out the uh, the spielberg best picture spielberg is up Ed there spielberg you're up against the social... It's basically the social network yeah. versus the King's Speech yeah. at that point, is it? And how yeah. do you feel when he's opening the envelope? And the Oscar goes to... The King's Speech. Ian Canning, Emil Sherman, and Gareth Unwin producers. Well, it's surreal because there's just so much pressure has been on the movie, so much discussion, so much analysis, so many betting sites and pundits, and and you can't believe it's happening. And, you know, within all that, you were absolutely, or I was terrified of getting up in front of countless uh, thousands well, slash billions of people. many billions of people are watching it. Um, yeah. And having to give a speech. So, you know, it's it's definitely one of the peak moments if you if your life's defined by by the peak moments, that would be mm. you know, right up there. And when did you write the speech? Your um, speech? Probably over the, the day or two before. Yeah. You know, Man, uh, you don't get much of a time. As producers, thankfully, our job is to not show ourselves publicly. Yeah, and you're so busy that you're probably doing a whole bunch of other things as well. But do you remember when you were writing it, whether you were thinking, this is going to be amazing if it happens, or if you were thinking, there's no way this is going to happen? I, th- I think there's... Y- y- we had a pretty strong idea that we were very likely to win because you just look at the betting sites and the pundit sites. And uh, and then as the night progressed, it was clear that we were winning the things I see. that yeah. were less certain. Right. And so there it was, was a, a snowball. And it was yeah. Ian and I would look at each other and go, 
holy shit, I think I think this is going to happen. Incredible. And what did you do after the ceremony? We, um, you know, we partied. We went to the various parties and <laughs> and just had a good time. Yeah, it was a uh, it was amazing. You're just bouncing around from Vanity Fair to exactly, various other, exactly, other parties, exactly. Holding up the Academy Award for yeah. everybody to see. Yep. It was um, on this last one. We were in the Jay Z Beyonce party, which was really <laughs> to say it was the party highlight of our lives is a is an understatement. Really, where was that? It was at the Chateau Marmont. Of course, it was. Of course, yeah. it was. Yeah, I don't know how we got in. We were the only white people there, pretty much. <laughs> and when I say I don't know how we got in, I genuinely don't know how we got in, but we did. And um, this and was for the power of the dog. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Okay. It was an amazing party. Incredible, uh, Lloyd. You're sitting here patiently, being wowed by I your am, cousins. Well, uh, listen, I've heard exploits. some of these stories before, but I I love hearing them again. <laughs> <laughs> and I smile every time I listen to Emil about these stories because it is a phenomenal success that he's had with both Seesaw and, and his individual achievements. And, uh, and what was what was your relationship when you guys were growing up? Were you close? No, because I moved to I, – I, I only uh, – Emil was brought up in South Africa. I mean, in Australia. I was brought up in South Africa. So our connection really is when I moved here 25 years ago. And you were a clinical psychologist originally. And then... o- originally spent probably 15 years in, I'd say, divided up between political activism and human rights. Um, qualified as a clinical psychologist, uh, spent 15 years in – Political activism, human rights, and then moved into business, probably in my in my thirties. So I got into business quite late. Now, there's sometimes a perception in Australia that South Africans who came here 25 years ago were sort of comfortable with the previous regime or were comfortable with apartheid. And one mm. of the reasons why they left was because all of a sudden things were uh, were going in a direction mm. they didn't want to. Mm. That wasn't the case for you. No, because I spent. Um, well, I got into politics relatively early in my 20s, uh, was president of the student union and then was on the executive of what was then the United Democratic Front, which was probably one of the primary uh, organizations to oppose apartheid, very much part of the ANC in, in the broader sense, which was Mandela's party. That got banned in in 85, uh, I was in hiding. I uh, had my own issues, uh, tough times uh, during the states of emergency. Um, and then later on, I set up the uh, Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, which was prior to the abolition of apartheid. And that carried on until uh, I left that and sort of a year after South Africa became a democratic country. And you said you had your own issues. What, what were those? Well, I, you know, I, it's, it's funny. I, I experienced, um, like many people who were opposed to apartheid, but actively so, um, you know, I experienced the repression of South Africa, not in the extreme way that other people did, because many people lost their lives. Many people were tortured. Many people went to jail for 20, 30 years, like Mandela did and, and many others. Um, but uh, being sort of at the center of and, and leading some organizations, inevitably, I experienced the repression that came with a highly repressive police state. I mean, the point about apartheid, I think, that people forget is that it wasn't just a racist state. It was a a very repressive state that uh, put many people in jail, killed many people outside of all the other abuses that it had. So 
Um, and and for probably four or five years, uh, it you know it was for at least three of those years, it was a state of emergency. I mean, legally, you weren't allowed to meet uh, with more than two people legally. Um, you know, it was illegal to have a party of three meetings. So uh, it was a it was a tough time. I had I had my own experiences, and that led me to setting up the center for. Uh, reconciliation um, after I became uh, I, after I left activism I found that in my activism I started to find myself unfortunately and I didn't know it at the time but sort of almost revealing part of the oppressor I became hardline I was tough uh, dogmatic um, very judgmental, um, and I think that's what war does. And I think South Africa was at war certainly uh, for for ten or fifteen years. It was a civil war in in some form. And before that period, while you were still active under apartheid, what was it that you saw or that you had that was different from the way that most white South Africans responded to mm. that regime? I've thought about that a lot. Um, I was brought up in a very small conservative Afrikaans town. Um, we were, it was a mining town and the, a siren would go off at nine o'clock every single night. And that was a curfew for black people to be inside. Um, I would see, it was a mining town, I would see 18 or 19 year old miners beat up 35, 40 year old black men and the black men could not really resist. If they resisted, that was more of a greater consequence for them because they'd be arrested, they'd go to jail, they might be tortured. And so when you, I think, see those images in very stark, explicit forms as a six or seven-year-old, I think it removes all forms of subtlety. It's like you either, this either feels right or it feels wrong. And my parents were liberal and so I was always anchored on it. it's probably wrong and it just felt more and more wrong. So as a as a young kid, um, I just knew that it wasn't right. I, right. I, I, I knew that I had to do something. I didn't know what to do until I probably got to university. But the funny thing about the way that humans respond to so many of those situations of overarching systemic injustice is that we can observe that they're wrong and nonetheless sort of think, well, I mean, it is the way things are. Yes. I mean, it is the way things go. I mean, there are yeah. all kinds of things that we do now that I wonder whether people in the future will judge them harshly from mm. factory farming to the casual way yeah. we you know, we treat the impending climate yeah. chaos or whatever yeah. it might be. And I am as guilty as anybody going, you know what, I, I know that what we're doing is probably wrong, but this is the system that we live in and yeah. what am I going to do as, yeah. as just one individual and that's the way that the majority of white South Africans responded to that mm. scenario so there's some missing jigsaw piece yeah and I think sometimes you get a bit of um, when you fight injustice there's also a little bit of moral luck involved um, the moral luck came to me was um, I was offered the opportunity to stand for the student representative council I did very well I became president of that uh, and that sort of just took me into anti-apartheid politics. But I think it also depends on, you know, there's so many influences that shape whether we act on things or not. One of those is familial, right? Our family culture. My father was a military hero. And so there was always the sense in my family and that story that you had to do something about injustice. You couldn't just talk about it. So that He was, was a military hero from, from what? From front? the Second World War, in the right. Second World War. So he had won the military cross. He was part of a special battalion that... 
uh, Parabat Battalion that flew behind the lines. Uh, and so In the European theater or in Africa? In the European theater. Yeah, right. So Italy, Greece, he was honored by uh, the Greek government. So, he, you know, he was a real war hero. And so that was probably the script I had was – was that you had to fight. You, right. you couldn't accept. And I suppose with that dimension plus the theater that I was in, which was this moral injustice, there was probably an inevitability that I was going to to act. I then did act, and, and part of my actions over a period of time I just grew uncomfortable with mm. uh, myself. I mean, I didn't it's, – it's hard to be um, fair – when you're fighting a regime that has spies, security police, because you become more dogmatic, you become less democratic because you can't trust anybody, um, you become more fearful. And so I think over time there were parts of me by my late 20s that I didn't like about myself. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to say that then, but I think that's probably true now. And so you embark on this journey towards, I guess, embracing reconciliation rather than manning the barricades and fighting the bad guys. And in, in fact, when the, the famous Truth and Reconciliation Commission is established, you become a commissioner on that. Is that right? No, I was nominated, or, but I declined. Why um, is that? Uh, I, I was, by then I, I had seen, I'd set up the Center for Reconciliation. Uh, we had a massive trauma clinic. We were dealing with victims uh, and survivors of uh, rape, abuse, death squads. I was working a lot at death row, dealing with ANC cadres who had been sentenced to death. Um, I, I had extreme post-traumatic stress probably, I reckon, uh, five or six years into that work. And I was the director and still raising money. Um, and spending a lot of time internationally, uh, so I think I was a I was a mess. My wife would say, "Listen, you you need some help yourself," and I would say, "I don't." As as many post traumatic stress people do, I, I was sorted myself. I just became more bantery, more aggressive, more macho, more machismo in dealing with um, just the tragedy and the abuse. And I think. By the time I was seven or eight years in, I remember seeing a victim, a woman who came to see me, and she had found her daughter raped and shot in the head uh, during a um, sort of a, an uprising in, in, in a particular area. And I remember sitting there and thinking, I've got no compassion left. I've, I, I'm just angry on your behalf, but I couldn't be compassionate to her. And I, it was at that point that I knew I had to get out. I had to leave human rights. I was done. Uh, mm. I was just too angry all the time. Um, angry on her behalf, angry to do something, but I realized I, I had lost my compassion. Uh, anger is a very powerful force. It's very energizing. It does lots of good things in the world. Um, but I think um, so is compassion, and I'd, I'd, I'd really lost my compassion itself. How did you figure out what to do? Um. I don't know how I figured out. I just somehow, again, random luck, a colleague of mine who had also been in politics had gone into business. He said, why don't you come join us uh, in our firm? I did, and uh, that's that was really my entry. Um, had it been somebody else, it, I might have done something different, and I've been in business really ever since. And so explain what you do now in your consultancy. 
Um, we have a boutique consultancy. It's it sort of has two parts. One is sort of uh, consulting. We do a lot of work on on helping companies grow their revenue line more strategically. So what should they should do, uh, how they find different customers, what they what their value proposition is to their customers, meaning why should their customers choose them. And then the other part of our business is is a lot of sort of quite executive training. So uh, training of executives in different sets of skills. Um, we are boutique, we global, um, we've probably had more success than I would have anticipated, but uh, it's been a successful ride. Mm, great. Emil, did, what, did you know about this side of the family in South Africa when you were growing up? Did, were they ever talked about? I think, uh, Lloyd's related to my father, Brian, um, and a lot of my relatives were really through my mother's side. So it was something special that had Lloyd and his family knew my dad's family from these really tiny towns in South Africa. I mean, my father's from a town called Brackpan, which I always understood was, what, what does it mean, brackish water? I mean, these are, these are not like, yeah. uh, um, you know. Not great names. Not great not... advertising. <laughs> so I, 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 I came from a town called Stillfontein, Still Fountain. Still, I mean, so, so we're not talking are, yeah. erudite here. Yeah. And it's not Cape Town. No, no, they really didn't look like Cape Town. We went back. But no, it's really only been, you know, in the last 10, 15 years that Lloyd and I have become close. And it's just a great... In a sense, he was my father who passed away recently, and he's really um, a younger brother to my father, and Lloyd's like an older brother to me, and Lloyd's son, Jonah, is a bit like a, a you know a younger brother to me. So we've got this really great mm. inter-half-generational relationship, which, which I haven't really had with anyone else. Mm. So what was going on in culture that you guys were seeing that made you think about the possibility of teaming up for a podcast? Well, you know, we just enjoy each other's company. We talk endlessly and toss ideas around. I think we're both really curious people. And about two and a half years ago now, um, maybe three years ago, we just thought, let's start a podcast together and just do something fun, find a way to, um, I guess, channel whatever we had to say and whatever voice had been left on the table in our respective jobs. And, and you both had so much spare time because spare you were time. making Academy Award-winning productions <laughs> and you were coaching we're global busy. companies. But, but you know, we, we, um, we've both been hugely influenced by Jonathan Haidt, who's, a, um, as you know, a, a psychologist and had written a book called The Righteous Mind, which was so beautifully sets out the moral sensibilities that are almost like our taste buds, moral taste buds, that... Um, so opened our worldview to the fact that so much of what we understand as being moral has really been controlled by a certain Western philosophical understanding of morality about, you know, the sort of human rights, the sort of deontology of Kant and utilitarianism, things that are based on equality and kindness. But there's a whole world of other moral sensibilities around loyalty and purity and hierarchy that... Essentially, what Hyde says is that the the right wing, uh, which I've Lloyd and I've always very much identified on the left side, they bring those moral sensibilities into their politics a lot more. And if you understand morality in a broader sense, you will understand why people are so drawn to different sort of moral uh, you know ideologies. And it opened up our mind, and I think we we talked about just the necessity to understand other points of view to understand the best version of other points of view we're both curious in ideas and thought let's start a podcast um, which actually tim mentioned came up with the name principle of charity so he gets the credit for that um 
But very much the idea was something that Lloyd and I came to ourselves, which is let's get two people, two expert guests with different views on key social issues and as part of the podcast, get them to articulate the most generous version of the other viewpoint. So to come into a, an understanding of um, social issues through two different viewpoints, which we know with our sort of biases and blinkers on that are just part of human nature, it's just so hard to unknow what you know and to know and to and to sort of step outside of oneself. And the best way to do it is just to have two different viewpoints actually mm. present. And then to frame it in this way, which says generosity, curiosity, seeking the truth, not winning the fight, not having a debate around which views better, but actually trying to understand the best version of the other and then see where that takes us. Because maybe new things come out, maybe you harden your own opinion, but unless you come to a discussion in good faith, there is no chance that the truth can emerge. Yeah. I mean, it's, Josh, I think, you know, in part, I was, I'm a recovering extremist because, uh, you know, I was in the hard edge of it. So polarization was something that I've really lived in the extreme sense of. Um, but to Emil's point, underst understanding the other is hard work. And I think we underestimate it. It's like when people say you have to be empathic. I mean, it's, that's really hard to say, to really say to somebody else who you disagree with, let me explain the strongest points of your argument and tell me if I've got it right, is the starting point for the principle of charity. Mm. Um, it, it goes against instinct, the principle of charity. It does rely on, a, on quite a lot of what I often refer to as intellectual and emotional horsepower. You really have to work at it. And I think working at it is the opposite force to instinct. Um, it's more rational, it's more cognitive, but um, you have to put a lot more effort into it. And, and that's the starting point for the principle of charity. Mm. We do often say, you're allowed to disagree, you can in fact dislike somebody, but try and dislike them after you understand what they've got to say first. Mm. Yeah. The uh, by the way, while we're on Jonathan Haidt, uh, he people should check out the episode of his on this podcast as well, which I've just looked up, which is from the twenty first of April, twenty twenty two. He's one of the world's most influential living psychologists. He's a moral psychologist at uh, NYU, and it's a he's an amazing person to listen to. And it's uh, it's I mean, when I first heard about this show, and it was Tim Minchin who put us in touch, Emil, yeah. and who who said, oh, you know, you should you should check out this podcast. It was amazing. I thought you had ripped off one of my ideas in the sense that, uh, I mean, I'm joking, but because you wouldn't have known about it, but I had pitched a television show which had the same concept. Where really? You get people really? To, yeah, yeah. When I was in the States, I pitched yeah, this right. show where you get people, and it was originally going to be just me with another person, but they had to play the role of, they had to flip and play the role of their of the opposite point of view that mm. they had, mm. and mm. we would spar together in two different versions with each of us sort of role playing. And there's something it's in, it, what's amazing to me is as you say Lloyd how hard it is but also how bad people are at it even when they're trying i remember i think this came out of a conversation i was having with a progressive friend and this was during the george w bush administration that's how far back mm. this is going and she was talking about torture at guantanamo bay and 
the evil in her eyes of people like Dick Cheney, who were ushering in this new mm. era of American tyranny. And I said to her, well, what do you think Cheney thinks? And she was like, it's obvious what Cheney thinks. Mm. He thinks these people are animals and that they don't have any rights. And I was like, well, do you think Cheney would say it that way? Yeah, that's right. Cheney wouldn't say it that way. What would Cheney say? And she was like, oh, I guess he'd say that, you know, they that we don't have to respect human rights because we're America and we don't care about human rights. And I was like, again, that's not what Cheney would say. And I sort of went off on this big rant, which I won't bother re-articulating, but it was something along the lines of what Cheney would say is there are times to play nice and there are times to not play nice. And 9-11 has shown us the perils of what happens when you play too nice and you pussyfoot around. And the world is a fucking serious place. So get with the program or don't. This is not a moment in which we're going to abide by the minutiae of little rules that were written by diplomats and bureaucrats yeah. in the, at the United Nations. Human lives are on the line if anyone in the world had the power to make their people safe using any means necessary, then they would. We are fortunate enough to live in the country that does have that power because we are the superpower. And I'm sorry if it offends your sensibilities that we're going to do everything we need to do in order to protect ourselves. But this is an uncompromising fight. And it's a fight you brought to us that we didn't start. So we're mm. going to do everything we can to defend ourselves. Mm. That's what Cheney would say. And she sat there sort of looking at me like blankly agog and was like, Oh, I hadn't really thought of that. Obviously, it's hard to think that way. But yeah. if you're ever going to take on Cheney on terms that he's going to understand, it's no point to come at him with a caricature or a cartoon, a cardboard well, cutout. It, it yeah, I, I mean, you can't, you know, I think the rules around persuasion are pretty clear. The first rule, if you're going to even get a chance at persuading anybody, is not to try and persuade them. The first rule is to try and make sure that they feel understood so that they're giving you some mm. space to be persuaded. If they don't give you space, um, you pretty much are going to lose that that battle if, they, if you see it as a battle. So I think in the principle of charity, our focus is very much on how to disagree. And, and our first base is, do you understand what the strongest arguments are of the other side? And can you replay those arguments to the point where the person says, thank you, Josh, I, I wouldn't have put it that way, but or I would have put it that way, and that is exactly how I would put it. Something to that effect where they're going, thank you, Josh. Once they go, thank you, Josh, you understand me, you, you're in the game of persuasion. If, if they don't, you're just lecturing. Have you had conversations where it's been a brick wall? You know, when people get together... They tend to – I think it's, a, also, it's about creating a space and an energy. I, I'm trying to say that in the least sort of airy-fairy way possible. But I think <laughs> You're dangling talk, crystals right now in well, front of me. Well, when people talk, you're not chanting. really trading bits of information. You're coming to a conversation with an intent. And we try to create a space where generosity and curiosity and respect is the 
is the fabric of the conversation, is sort of the air one breathes in that conversation. And so I think when people choose to come in to the podcast, they're coming with that intent. We've had a lot of guests who really strongly disagree with each other and who maybe come out uh, disagreeing as much as, as before, if not more. And I think as, as I've gone through this journey of doing um, really a lot of the topics come from subject matter that I've become obsessed with myself and think about a lot and trying to work out what's the answer. You know, one of the first ones, is pornography inherently demeaning to women? Is it moral to eat meat? We looked at identity politics recently. Cultural appropriation is a really big one in my industry. You know, is, is, is that problematic or not? And I realized that obviously, you know, this is, this is going to sound very, very obvious to listeners, but there is no answer. The answer is to understand the issues from as many sides as well, possible. Well, I'm not sure that that will sound obvious to many listeners. I think a lot of listeners will think there is an answer. Cultural appropriation is wrong. Uh, you know, white people have been doing this for so long, blah, blah, blah. Or a... another person will say, uh, you know, there is an answer. People are getting hysteric, getting their tits in a tangle about something that they shouldn't, you know. I think there are cases where um, people are motivated by really bad will. There are evil people out there. There are cases where people have misunderstood the data. But there are often cases where people just have different values and they bring different values to an issue. Um, and so understanding the issue from multiple perspectives, for me, is the greatest act of... That's the sort of moral core, in a sense. That would be the moral instinct that I'd add to Jonathan Haidt's five tastes, which is the instinct, the moral instinct to understand the other. And so, sure, that comes out in ways of we want to, you know, human rights and, and you know, uplifting marginalised people. But at the core, it's reaching outside oneself and saying, what is it like to be you? And my world, the creative world of creating film and television and writers and directors is about exploring what it's like to be outside oneself, to make that leap outside oneself and to bring that sensibility and intention to a conversation to go, I have a viewpoint. We all know, I mean, it's really psychology 101 to know that our views are going to be so blinkered by so many things. Even the most self-humble person epistemically, and that's something we promote on the podcast. Another question we ask is, what's the weakest version of your own argument? Hmm. But there's a limit to how much we can understand and analyze ourselves. You need to be with another person with a different viewpoint. You need to be in relief from oneself in order to start seeing the world from different viewpoints. At that point, your view may change. It may not change. But I think it's a lot less important where one lands than the ability to incorporate other viewpoints and to see the issue holistically. I think things will land where they land afterwards, but we'll that's, for me, 90% of the work of a civil society is being able to be in conversation with each other and truly listen in good faith and try to understand what everyone's saying. And Sorry, jump in, Lloyd. Yeah, Josh, for me, part of our project in the principle of charity, I come from it from a perspective of wanting to contribute to a democratic society. I don't feel complacent about democracy at all. I, I, you know, I only voted for the first time in my life in, in my 30s, um, partly because I, I chose not to vote. Um, 
But democracy... Can't do that here in Australia. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Mate, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. That's right. Grab your sausage and we'll but, fine you if you don't vote. But democracy is pretty precious. And yet, when we're in it, we go, the other side is just terrible. And yet, democracy is based on having other sides. That is what it is about. It is having more than one party. It is having different parties. And when we go, that other party is disgusting and they shouldn't exist, and I'm, you know, inverted commas, uh, then we are starting to really set the scene for potentially leaders to come along um, and galvanize us to to break that apart. Mm. Well, it's uh, also just not healthy not to have a good opposition as well. I copped a lot of flack after the last federal election in Australia for mentioning on this show that uh, we shouldn't be gloating too much about the, the catastrophic loss that the Liberal Party faced here in Australia because they'd lost all of their moderates. And so now they were a rump of their former selves uh, led by much more conservative people. Uh, and, you know, I was just saying, just be careful what you wish for mm. if you're on the left. You, you actually probably do want a sane and, uh, you know, strong opposition party to both to keep yourself in check and so that when they do eventually get into power, they'll be, you know, a, a reasonable people. You don't necessarily want to vanquish and demolish and raise the villages of your opponents, uh, where does that leave you? It brings out the worst in you and probably them. I think you're so right. I mean, desperate people uh, do desperate things, right? I mean, we even see that in Russia and Ukraine at the moment. The desperation of Putin may lead to even worse things, right? I mean, that's... But I, I would say part of what we do need to protect and, and uh, is, is the institutions that allow us to have good disagreement. I mean, is parliament working? Is the media working in a way uh, that allows fair debate? Are we getting both sides? Do people feel represented? Without that, I, I think we lose the ability or a mechanism to even have the principle of charity. We need the mechanisms to allow us to, yeah, to it, disagree because our instinct sometimes is to hate. Hmm. So one one rejoinder to this, to, to what you're saying, and a rejoinder to my podcast and to my outlook on life, uh, follows a, a similar kind of theme to the Dick Cheney one that I was just articulating, but it can come just as much from the left as from the right, which is that this is all a very nice, effete language game for centrists to to peddle to make themselves feel good about uh, not being uh, an, an extremist. But sometimes desperate times call yep. for desperate measures, and we have a world that if you're on the left, you might say, is being deranged by figures like Donald Trump and the far right in Europe and uh, climate chaos. And if you're on the right, you, you might say by political correctness and, and cancel culture and wokeness and, uh, you know, transgender fads or whatever the target yeah. du jour might be. And that it's all very well for you guys to fiddle while Rome burns. But at the end of the day, you know, what if the conciliatory conversation that you're trying to have yeah. is between a Nazi yeah. And so, like, how much how much well, understanding do Nazis deserve? Yeah, you know, it's it's easy to misunderstand the principle of charity and think it's about just trying to bring a state of consensus or pretend that we all agree with each other or not take action. It's really just about a first step of how do we engage with the other and understand multiple points of view before we decide what to do. It's but aren't there some points of view not worth understanding? I think every I think every point of view is worth understanding, but a lot of points of view you don't want to countenance, you don't want to accept, you don't want to permit uh, the society to act on you know according to that that point of view. You know, action and the moments to take action, activism. We have a lot of activists on the podcast, and we're particularly 
respectful of the advocates and activists who come on who have to, on the one hand, get up every day and rally their tribe and their troop and push through their agenda, their just agenda, at the same time to know whether your agenda is just sort of as an a priori step. You need to know what all the arguments are around because you might be putting your energy in the wrong direction. You might be fighting against a group who you don't truly understand. And, you know, even if it's just to try to destroy the opposition, understanding it from their point of view is very helpful. <laughs> but if you, but there are times where you might be wrong. And if you don't understand someone else's point of view, you must miss out on ways to improve your position. And then there's just the basic fact of we are living in a society and we want to live in a society with diversity, diversity of, of backgrounds, points of view, upbringing, everything. And in order to do that, we need the structures and the norms around how to disagree productively. And so this sits as a baseline and it's, it goes even to a very baseline philosophical idea that when you say something, Josh, you could easily not be saying it in a way that's 100% clear. You know, I trained as a well, lawyer. Well, me, I'm originally. always 100% clear, You're, as you, you know. You particularly are. <laughs> but look, lawyers spend their entire day um, extending contracts to ensure that it's, it's foolproof, that there's no way that a misinterpretation can happen. But conversations are not like that. Emails are not like that. Tweets are not like that. How do we interpret what the other person's saying without them having to create put caveats and dot mm. points to every single line of their you know statement and the only way to do it is to have another side who is doing their best to understand the most charitable version of what they say yeah right so i mean you, i you call need it that the... as a base as a sort of a basic um a basic theory of knowledge. Otherwise, we're just going to miscommunicate. The whole I call time. it throat clearing. The uh, you know the well, amount of time that you need to spend at the moment uh, yes. clearing your throat before you say something. Yeah. And if you were going to say something about you know let's just say high indigenous rates of crime in Australia, you'd have to spend the first forty five seconds saying. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm a white person obviously, in Australia, obviously. so I don't have the lived experience of Indigenous Australians. It? It's very inefficient. Like, can we just take it as a given that I don't? Some of the charities uh, about efficiency and about <laughs> <laughs> but, but I productivity. Think, but Emil, I think you know we had a, Josh. Josh has a point, and Emil and I, and I, I think we may disagree slightly, but uh, that's good. <laughs> we often do. Um, but we had an episode uh, podcast with Tim Mention where we spoke about when does the principle of charity not apply? And I think it doesn't apply at times when you are in contexts or situations that are not democratic or are not charitable or where disagreement will cost your life. Um, and you, you need the principle of charity to be within a situation where disagreement is permissible. But there are times when uh, seeking the truth is dangerous. Uh, it will cost your life. And there are times when you do have to act. Um, and sometimes you have to act instinctively without trying to understand because that is your only way of surviving. What, uh, about, uh, what about environments where the stakes are less than that but the interlocutor is acting in bad faith? Do you need both people to be acting in good faith? Because uh, I encounter this all the time where people say, why don't you just have so-and-so on the show for a different perspective on whether or not COVID vaccines are safe, for example. Well, well I think and it's... I, and I, just to finish yeah. that thought, I say they, I know that they are coming in with a preconceived barrow that they want to push and that there's 
I know enough about them to know that there's it's not going to be a good faith conversation. So I, I sort of don't want to get swamped by their bullshit. And I'm not sure whether that's the right decision or not. Yeah. And I think for us, I would be sometimes asking that individual what their weakest arguments are, not their, their strongest arguments. I think if somebody's coming in from bad faith and somebody else is coming in from good faith, I, I still think the good faith person represents a role model. Uh, I still think that experience of seeing somebody try and be charitable, try and be understanding is still a contribution to society. Uh, culture is made up of what we see. Um, it's, 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 it's invisible, but we're observing it all the time. And so I think that good faith person is, is doing a good job, even in their smallest way. Yes, yeah, sorry, Mel. Yeah, we, we, we do try to get guests who come in good faith. I think you're absolutely right that it's, you know, it, it can become an unproductive conversation if, two, if the two guests don't meet with that sort of energy. But I think as Lloyd's saying, when you're talking to people in real life outside the podcast world, Josh. Um, I never do such a thing. Um, when one's not performing, it becomes, you know, you, you are what you do. And if you come to every conversation in good faith, I think there's a modeling factor and there's hopefully some sense that that energy gets um, gets gets spread around. And there, there are very few circumstances where it's the wrong decision to come to a conversation in bad faith to meet someone else's bad faith. At the very first instance, you just don't really – you won't give them the benefit of the doubt. I think, you know, th there – are times where one needs to put aside charitable thinking and just go to war and galvanize people against an enemy. But we, too many people are thinking that moment arrives too quickly. Right. You know? Yes. Um, it's very easy to kid ourselves into thinking that this is the moment because I've thought about it all and actually the enemy's too great. Mm. And now we need to put aside um, yeah. charitable thinking and we need to fight. Everyone can create that condition for themselves, for their own, um, you know, justice movement at any, at any moment. And so I think structurally it's about doubting oneself and using these sort of tools of thinking and of acting, which say, really, unless someone's got a gun to your head, go through the process of trying to understand the other person mm. in good faith. Look at what your weakest arguments are. Bring um, humility to the conversation. Just do that first because if you don't, there's no chance that you're going to catch your biases. Yeah, exactly. And, and things I will think spiral. It's important to understand that, of course, your body wants to always think that yeah. you're the good guy who's mm. fighting the important fight. Like this is hardwired in us through, from millions of years of yes. evolution. So it is counterintuitive to do what you're talking about. So you can't rely on your own instinct to, to guide you on whether or not you should be fighting or conciliating it, 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 because yeah. conciliation is naturally yeah. anathema and fighting is fun basically i mean this and you know the fact that our tendency to think that we're always at the barricades and that this is always the moment to to drop our any attempt at, at comedy and to pick up arms mm. is precisely why the nazi analogy keeps getting trotted out by yeah. everyone yeah. anytime you know trump voters are nazis uh, you know yeah. people who don't yeah. know anything about climate change are nazis because that was the one instance in history where it was absolutely black and white for pretty much all of us, mm. right? They're the one group of people for whom you can say, yeah, 
just shoot him in the head. Like, I don't care. You know, like, but you'd none still of us want to understand any... the Nazi. You'd still want well, to understand Not, by now, not in 2022. I mean, now we know enough. I know. I saw what but happened. If you were to going my... to influence them at the time. I wouldn't care about influencing them. I'd just want to but beat you them. Would, sure, but Emil, sure. there'd, there'd be a point. To... No, there's a point. But I'm where saying... You're saying you can't influence anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. The, the first point, whatever you want to do, is to understand them from and, their perspective. And, and, I, and I loved your point in that sense is that it could help you. But I want to, Josh, you know, I think your point about instinct is really powerful. If you, if you listen to people, they often say, follow your instinct. Do what feels good. And in fact, that's just wrong. If we followed our instinct, we would be in a mess. Uh, I mean, civilization does not exist if we follow our instinct. Civilization in part exists because we're curbing our instincts. Mm. Mm. Uh, all We have to curb our instincts. We have to con- curb some of our private thoughts and not make them public uh, because it would be not only dangerous for us, but it's dangerous for other people. It can be very hurtful. And the principle of charity is really emphasizing curbing your instinct. It is saying, you know, just... Just consider the other more carefully. I, I think fear is a real driver of, of hatred. It's a real driver of wanting to be right. And most of the time, if you reflect on your life and what you thought 10 years ago, you'd go, I was wrong. Mm. I was wrong about X. I was, when I was a kid, I thought X. Now it's Y. Uh, when I was 20, I thought X. And now it's Y. And if that's your history... You have to know probably what you're saying now is probably going to be wrong. I do like the the point that uh, one of you alluded to earlier also, which is that the, you don't extend the principle of charity to the other person in order to be nice to them, although it may have that effect, but to make your own position more robust. Mm. I mean, it amazes me in the modern cultural climate that so many people think that they're going to have a better understanding of why they believe what they believe by deplatforming other speakers or, you know, boycotting events where people they disagree with are speaking. Because what's the old line about, like, if you don't understand your opponent's position, then you don't really understand your own. Mm-hmm. I mean, in order, to, in order to truly understand why it is and, and to strengthen why you believe what you believe and to make it more compelling to other people, you've got to hear the best arguments of the other side. Otherwise, you're just whistling yeah. Dixie in your own chamber. Yeah, I, I think you can't really be said to have a, uh, a solid opinion unless you understand all the arguments against it and the best and the best versions of those arguments. I don't think... You've got an instinct then, to Lloyd's point. You, you, you have an ideology, but you don't actually... You're not able to lay claim to a proper thought through opinion. What do you make uh, of arguments about bigotry? Sorry, do you... But, did, but the deplatforming, yeah, though, yeah. I think there is... Sorry, the second thing I'd say is... I th- still think it's too transactional to think of the principle of charity being useful to help you understand others so that you can be better at influencing them. I think one should you need to come to the, to the principle of charity thinking you may be wrong yourself. Like you have to come with some epistemic humility. And so you Why? may be wrong. Why do you have to? Because it strikes me that that's a harder sell to get people to engage in this process than if you say this is for your benefit. You no, I, I, sure, sure. It's probably a harder sell. But I'm saying that is the essence of it is to recognize that we we may actually be wrong to Lloyd's point. I know that I've changed my mind through my life. You just look at the history of ideas. They change all the time. We all know we're influenced by the culture, by our tribes, by the groups we're in. By definition, we're going to be wrong. 
it's just obvious we're going to be wrong to a degree. So you just have to come into a conversation like that. But right, I do... but I would just say that even if there is an area in which I'm 99.999% confident that I'm correct, I think it's still worth actually arguing with a person who thinks who disagrees. I mean, yeah. even if it's something like, you know, I don't think that Jews are a scourge on the world uh, who, are, who are causing all of the world's problems. I still think it would be worthwhile to talk to somebody who does think that because, well... A, they'd be very easy to knock down. And well, they they wouldn't be easy to for, from their perspective. They won't get knocked down. No, but for the for the bystander, they will. For you, for you, in arguing with them, you'll think you've knocked them down. But they won't. They'll walk away from that argument thinking, "Wow, I really showed Josh up." Yeah, they might. It, certainly, if they're acting in bad faith and they, they don't have good reasons for believing what they believe, which I suppose in that example they don't. But a lot of it is performative, isn't it? I mean, aren't we doing this for the benefit of bystanders? Well, I think that's that's the that's the that's the effect on other people. But I think one does need to come into the conversation in good faith, because otherwise the whole thing becomes a performance. But do I need to come in suspecting that it might be true that Jews are the scourge of all the world's problems? I I, I think look, we need to be reasonable here and go. If there are good faith beliefs, and there are beliefs that are just clearly motivated by bad faith and by evil, and again, it's very easy to think. To, it's very easy to overestimate um, the value uh, and the sort of moral underpinning of one's own belief and write other people off. So I think it's just creating that moment of doubt to go, hold on a second, before I decide that they're motivated by bad faith, I'm going to understand the best version of their belief, even if it's that Jews are, you know, the, the source of all evil in the world. But I just want to come back to your point on deplatforming, because I do think the progressive left have... Um, identified a weakness in the principle of charity and in public discourse, which is that power is involved and that there are power relationships which make certain ideas um, more prominent and make marginalised ideas or ideas from marginalised groups uh, have less access to the microphone. And so part of the idea of deplatforming, as we know, is to ensure that the people with the microphone, the people with the power, don't just stay in power the whole time. And I think, I think, in my view, we need to take that seriously. I think if you're balancing the value of that belief with the incredible structural necessity of being able to have good conversations with multiple viewpoints in a democracy, I think it pales in comparison to the value of having um, conversations and not deplatforming. But I wouldn't dismiss the I wouldn't dismiss deplatforming out of hand. I think they're onto something. It's just I think the cure is worse than the poison. Josh, just coming to your point about arguing with somebody who believes that Jews are the scourge of the world, I, th- I think when you go into that argument with that person, you need to be clear what your intention is. So is your intention to show that they're wrong? Is your intention to persuade? Uh, is your intention potentially to feel that you're morally righteous, morally superior in having that? I think knowing what you want to achieve out of that argument matters. And there are people. Uh, all of us change our views. I think getting somebody to believe that the Jews are not the scourge of the world when they believe that they are, that's, that's going to be a hard task. It's like getting people out of the Ku Klux Klan or 
de-radicalizing, uh, you know, a militant of or an extremist. That's 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 hard work. You're not going to do that through one conversation. But I think knowing your intention matters because sometimes if your intention is to show them up, I would say don't do it. Uh, they're just going to get more extreme in their views probably after after that. So I think really knowing your intention. For me, the principle of charity is all about, as we say in the show, you know, seeking the truth, not winning the fight. For that, it's a scientific concept in the sense that I remember my doctoral supervisor, if I had a hypothesis, she would always go, so Lloyd, what's the alternative hypothesis? Before you go prove your hypothesis, tell me what the opposite view is and then disprove that. Now, that's hard work. And the genius of science, the genius of science is that the great scientists are always trying to almost disprove themselves. They're interested in data. They're not scared about a 20-year project and putting 20 years of their career on the line and then the data demonstrates that their hypothesis is wrong. That is remarkably courageous. You have to almost have no ego. And I think, you know, in my experience of great scientists, that's what they illustrate. They illustrate not only, you know, a intellectual horsepower, but they demonstrate a lack of ego. Mm. Uh, that's what makes them the great scientists. If they only have intellectual horsepower, it gets to be a mess. And you were inspired by um, Philip Fetlock's research on super forecasters mm. as well. Can you? That it sounds like this is a good moment to articulate what that is. Well, well, his work is interesting because when he looked at people forecasting. Uh, a range of things, whether it was the oil price in five years' time or which political party would be in or what the price of copper would be. Um, most of the forecasters, uh, the super forecasters, uh, got it wrong. But the people who got it right the most were what he he certainly, as my understanding of his work, was he identified one core tray and they were some of the least confident people about their perspectives. Uh, and because of that... Because they were not that confident, they did more work. They were more curious about the other side. They were more curious about the alternative perspective. Um, they just were less complacent. To Emile's word, they were more humble in their approach to the problem. And just doing that increased their percentage chance of getting the forecast right. But the reality is most of our forecasts are wrong. I mean, nobody would have forecast Donald Trump winning. Nobody could have forecast COVID. But Lloyd, this is where the the media system, the system of incentives, the economic system of incentives, the grant systems at university work against principles yes. of charity. Yes. Because the people who generally are asked as economists what yeah. they think of the future, the people who are going to be the most confident, not the people who say, I don't know. And the people who and actually the, the scientists uh, who get grants are like have to succeed. They have uh, to prove their theory. Otherwise, they're probably not going to... Uh, well, I mean, I'm glad you make that point because I think this is a problem of conversation, not a pre prediction. Because yeah. uh, yeah. people, people have this conception yeah. now that Donald Trump, that nobody predicted Donald Trump and that nobody predicted COVID. No. The media conversation before the Donald Trump election and the media conversation in times of non-pandemic don't prepare us for these things. Mm. The... Actual pollsters, really, like Nate Silver, who's probably America's best mm. po best pollster, he had it at a 70 to 80 percent chance that Hillary was going to win with a lot of caveats and variables if you read his final piece. And it, he was not surprised. Like this was not a, you know, it sound, 20 to 30 percent sounds like not a big chance, yeah. but... 
you know, you roll if you've got a three, you know, it's a flip of the coin. It's a little less. Well, than people a flip of don't coin. understand probability, do they? That's a very right. So hard it's, thing it's, for humans but, to but perfectly. Cons- and as for as for a pandemic, I mean, people who understand pandemics have been screaming from the rooftops that this is just around the corner for you know the past thirty years. So there's something about the way that we communicate with, with yeah, each other true. and the way that we communicate risk. But I think can is, I just say on probability and come to you, Lloyd? Just that it is an incredibly complicated thing for humans to understand what probability means. How do you internalize Trump has a 30% chance of winning? Are you wrong if you say that and and he wins? It means that if you replay this thousands of times, mm. 30% of the time he would win. Right, exactly. So you're just so in one of those universes. So you're in one of those universes. And, you know, when you look at the weather report and it says, you know, 10% chance of, of, of rain and it rains, you can be angry at them. But the only way to know if they're wrong is to look at it thousands of times and right. see are they consistently saying it's 10% chance and that 10% hasn't ever happened. We in a world where we don't know what the future is going to bring. But having to Lloyd's point, a sort of humility allows you to be able to get closer to you know the prediction power. Uh, yeah, and than, the, than, than I mean this is myself. one of the difficult things also about Sorry. you know science. You go to a scientific conference. Every scientist who's really good is going to couch their research yep. in so many caveats and say, "Well, we don't, you know, we're still not sure about this." We're still not. And it's the surest sign of a quack or a charlatan when they come out of the gate with a level of certainty. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it, it, it's interesting why we need to hear definitive views, mm. and I think part of that is because the baseline, the foundation for anxiety. Uh, one of the foundations is the lack of control. So when we don't feel in control, we get more anxious. Uh, the other is often anxiety is about a negative forecast. Um, but we we need certainty, which is why religion uh, is so powerful, because it gives you a sense of certainty. Astrology is so powerful. Stock pickers are powerful. Economists are powerful. And we had uh, Russ Roberts on our show, uh, an economist, um, and I asked him the question, I said, Economists are getting forecasts wrong consistently. Why are they still respected? When does your discipline go back and go and say, and when does an economist go, you know, for the last 15 years, these were the forecasts I made and I've got 95% wrong. And why has this person still got credibility? And, and Russ, why are you still making forecasts? And he goes, nobody would phone me up if I didn't make a forecast and I wasn't definitive. If I said I'm not sure... The media just wouldn't carry my story. And, you know, we in part, we in part to blame. We, we love certainty. And I think to your point, Josh, the great scientists are always, and to Emil's point about probability, they're always couching it is, I, this is my best view at the moment. I'm listening to a great uh, audio book by Helen Lewis, the British journalist who some people might remember from her famous interview with Jordan Peterson. Uh, and uh, she's at The Atlantic. And uh, shes uh, it's funny you say that because just this morning I was listening to her interview Paul Krugman, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, and they're speaking in 2019 and she's asking for his forecast of the global economy. And uh, he's talking about a couple of big threats, and he sort of says, uh, and I, and you know, he's talking about you know interest rates being too low, too low, and or you know going even lower than than the negative rates that they almost were. And he says, sort of says, oh, and I'm sure there's there's something else that you know I'm not even thinking about right now that could blindside us. Yeah. And, you know, six months later, yeah. uh, you know, along comes COVID. And I think you <laughs> highlighted in one of your podcasts. I, uh, 
you know, I think you were talking about The Economist. I mean, this is a great magazine. Right. With very, you know, thorough, um, well-thought-out pieces uh, by, you know, top journalists who've been well-trained. And you look at their predictions every year, uh, which I think you pointed out in one of your podcasts, and they go, when they look, you know, what's our prediction for 2023 uh, or 2022 or 2021? Mm. Uh, when they reflect on it in the, the you know the, the the year later, they've got it wrong. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard for us to believe that we're wrong. And if we just had that belief, and we could carry the belief that we are often wrong, um, without feeling a lack of confidence, I think we would just be more curious. We would apply the discipline of science to our personal life, and I think that would make a difference. There are professions. I'm really interested in how different professions are structured for different outcomes. So if you are, um, as I was saying, an economist with doing a lot of media appearances, you're going to have to make predictions. That's part of the... And be confident. And be confident about it. Yeah, can't just but make often a people who are in business, who are maybe even fund managers or hedge fund managers, yeah. these are people who are successful only if they're accurate. Not, I mean, sure, you to sell and to raise money, you probably have to be confident. But if you are constantly doubting yourself and updating your beliefs based on new evidence that's coming in, you are going to be more successful as an investor. And, you know, Nissim Taleb's talked quite a bit about this, being a, a trader philosopher, as he is, that when you've got skin in the game and when, when this moves from a place of ideas and ideology into into the sort of trading floor, that's when um, you can be rewarded for humility. Mm. And so I think trying to find and adjust our structures in society a little bit by rewarding people for humility. How do we make it sexy was something that Tim Minchin was discussing with us. How do we make the idea of being humble and not knowing something that is apl- is, is applauded yeah, that's and good. respected? Well, we're trying, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, Emil, you know, it's so true. I think super successful people who are successful sustainably, meaning over long periods of yeah, time. It's the long, horizon is an important They have thing. two things that they carry very well. They carry a confidence in themselves about their ability to deal with pressure, challenges, get, you know, sort things out. But they also have a humility which stops the hubris. If they carry both, they're sustainable for long periods of time. If mm. they carry only confidence, that success is tends to be short term. They'll blow up. They blow in, up. In, they blow up. In Taleb, Taleb's you know, words, they blow they up. They blow up. I, I can't let your comments about deplatforming a meal go without uh, without some pushback. Though, good. Because good. The, the what I think is underlying the so this comes in the context of a few weeks ago, the latest instance in Australia was that there was a University of Melbourne event uh, that was discussing policies of diversity and inclusion, mm. uh, specifically with regards to trans students. Uh, it was a very pro-trans left-wing type affair. Uh, one of the speakers was a, a feminist Greens uh, parliamentarian. Mm. Another was Alan Davison, who's a, a colleague of mine. I'm a, a professional fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's the Dean of, of Social Sciences there. And uh, a very it was moderated by John Fain, who's a celebrated Australian broadcaster. Only after Paul Barclay, another broadcaster, dropped out because of the blowback that was already emerging on Twitter as it being a, a place for platforming hate speech because mm. it was going to consider, 
you know, uh, the erasure of trans lives or however. Mm. And there were these really prominent people. I mean, even mm. friends of mine, Patrick Lenton, who is a proper blue checkmark Twitter legit journalist mm. who, has, who is an editor of a major publication, was saying that this event should not go ahead because mm. it's hate speech mm. uh, and it's bigotry. And there should be, there is no quote unquote debate over the right of trans people to exist. Mm. But the right of trans people, you can pack a lot into this box called the right of trans people to exist. Mm. And there was absolutely no one on that panel or anywhere near it who didn't believe in the right of trans people to not just exist, but have all of the same rights as everybody else. The conversation was going to be around some nuanced distinctions of policy areas where there may or may not be disagreement. And so underlying the the deplatforming thing, I don't think you can. I think you're being so generous to say that the that that people who deplatform are only concerned about their the fact that there are power dynamics because, of course, that's true. Peter Singer on this show said, "If someone has a problem with something I say, then the solution is not to uninvite me, but to." I will give them all of the time in the world to mm. challenge me with ideas, not to try, mm. but don't try to get me fired. Mm. Try to ma- launch an argument, mm. and the deplatforming strikes me actually runs counter to your underlying desire to have more dialogue because it's an erasure of of dialogue. And the other thing that I would just add add to that in this very long and rambling soliloquy is. Underpinning the idea of deplatforming is a, a sort of inflation of what hate speech is. And this is why I sort of come back to the Nazi thing. What are the boundaries that we're going to draw around the conversations we can have? Mm. What are the conversations that we're going to exclude up front? Because at the moment, there seem to be more and more conversations that we're going to exclude up front. So the CEO of the Essendon Football Club you know, is uh, leads a church that has homophobic and anti-abortion views, and so he's forced to resign the day after he takes on the the CEO position at Essendon. And a large proportion of Australians think that that is prima facie an appropriate thing for him to have to relinquish mm. his job because there is no place in public society for quote unquote hate speech, meaning. There's no place to have conversations... About something I don't agree with. ...about something I don't agree with because it's hate speech. There's no place to have a conversation about with, with anyone who doesn't agree with gay marriage. Now, I'm married to a guy. I believe in gay marriage, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but do I want to live in a society in which we're not having those conversations or he's being yeah. deplatformed because he has this retrograde belief? I, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. And when people are deplatformed... I have a very visceral response to it. It feels like every it's everything that um, I don't want society to be. I think sometimes good ideas get perverted, and I'm just drawing attention to the good idea that still I don't think is on balance uh, um, helpful, but I think it is a good idea in itself that conversations are products of power. That there are power. It's a basic Marxist concept, isn't it? That the the power relationships, you know, um, sit underneath, uh, you know, the the superstructure under what's happening. And when people are, who's allowed? Who gets the microphone? How are conversations held? What are the norms around them? Um, even the norms of the principle of charity could be said to come out of a sort of history of power relationships. But it does get perverted, 
and then it can move very quickly into, as, as we say, that sort of instinctive thing that I'm now going to use this idea of power as a way to essentially cut out any form of conversation that, that I don't agree with. But I, I do want to throw a challenge to you both here because the the controlling of discourse that the progressive left has done recently has been successful in many ways. You could say it has essentially controlled the conversation. Obviously, there's been the shadow side to that, which is that the Trumps of the world have been elected and you've had more conservative governments who represent populist opinion have been elected and they use the um, controlling of conversations as a, as a weapon to galvanize their, their, their tribe. But do, do you think it's not the right thing to do, but do you think it's been a successful strategy or you think it's actually a bad strategy for them? Well, what's your yardstick of success? I mean, it's successful well, in the sense successful that... Successful from the sense that they've been able to achieve their goals from their perspective. In their environments, they have, because in the environments that they control, like the panel talks and the the social environments and the cocktail parties or the universities where they are ascendant, there are things that you can't say mm. that you used to be able to say. You can't question whether or not uh, it's wise to always be saying acknowledgements of country every time you go up to a panel. You can't ask, you know, whether. But does that or not... change how people think? Does it change how people well, act and vote? My next point would just be that's an own goal because all that cloistering does, I think, is right. then give sucker to the Trump. It, then you've got yeah. a pressure cooker, I think, in which that erupts, that has perverse consequences, and you end up with the people who don't want to be playing that game becoming more and more extreme. And so mm. you, I don't think you'd have Trump without that. I'm, I'm mm. going to be, I have two different perspectives here. Mm. One is a slight disagreement with you, Emil, and the other And we've one got three minutes, you, so this will be your last. Is, is with you, Josh. The, you know, when we talk about power uh, around deplatforming, and yes, there's always an economic power, social power that people have in the conversation, but the mob also has power. Mm. The mob has power over the individual, and mm. some of the deplatform is a bit mobby. Mm. Uh, it's it's scary when the mob gets going. I've seen it in crowd violence. I've seen it. You know, that we we are all available to the mob, mm. all of us, and uh, some of the deplatforming feels a bit mm. mob-like, and the individual has no power against the mob, um, and that's dangerous for me. But Josh. My challenge to you, so this is the alternative view, is what happens if that, and this is the argument for deplatforming, what happens if that individual, that public, let's call it a politician, who is potentially deplatformed, but in another scenario where they are making anti-gay statements, and that is mobilizing people to generate violence against gay people, should that person be deplatformed? There's a lot riding on the word mobilizing. They, they public officials. They, they, you know, they inspire people, like politicians do, to act. Um, yeah, I still don't think. No, I mean, I think there is uh, incitement to violence. So if there is an instruction or a, you know, a, well, I so can say the Jews are the scourge of the earth. There'll be some people who will act on that. 
Right. I'm not telling them to be violent, but they'll act on it. Right. And I think you should be able to say that. And I think you should be able to say that gay people are, are disgusting perverts who have what's coming to them. Uh, I do want to live in a, in a world that is big enough to tolerate that, largely because I think that there's going to be a certain number of people who think that anyway. And so the best way to take down those people is to know who they are, have them saying it out front, and to argue with them. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I loved what you said before, Lloyd, about identify what your objective is going into the conversation. The only reason I've lost sight of that is because I spend all of my life having conversations performatively where the real interlocutors are not... I mean, the the relevant participants in this conversation are none of the people in this room, Mm, right? They're mm. the people who are listening to us right now who (laughs) who vastly outnumber us. Mm. Uh, And so I'm always doing it with an eye to what the... uh, If I were talking to the anti-Semite, then I would not be trying to change Mm. that person's Mm. mind. I would be trying to tease apart holes in their logic in ways that people who might be on the fence or who might sort of be tempted to believe in them but are still open-minded you know would find compelling so if there's a if there's a writhing mob who are about to burn down like a you know a gay store and someone is whipping them up then yeah deplatform that person but if there is no imminent danger and there's no direct incitement and that person is expressing a hateful position, I would, I would uh, in, encourage taking the most capacious view of what we tolerate. Okay. I mean, I, well, I'd have a slightly different view on that. But why don't you – we've got well, – in the final isn't, 90 isn't, seconds, isn't why don't you articulate the, your that view? That the cure can be worse than the poison. Even if we would want to deplatform that person – Structurally, if you apply that and extrapolate out to society how we want to all deal with each other, you end up with a worse society if you take what's right in the in the minutiae and apply it broadly because you have to know that that could be applied back at you with the belief that it's, someone else disagrees with Which is with exactly you what happened to me. I felt that I was becoming in part the behavior of my oppressors in and of itself. Yeah. But a politician going... Gay people are the scourge of the world. They perverts and, I, you know, semicolon, I won't say any more. They keep on saying that. Saying it once is not going to, you know, incite people to violence. But if enough people say it and the conditions are right, over time people will get involved in gay bashing. Um, your view might be quite different as... Well, I, I just don't know what the alternative would be, Lloyd. I mean, well, the, the, you know, for me, the problem is, so make sure the conditions aren't right and make sure those politicians don't get into positions of power. But if the conditions are right for the gay bashing and those politicians are getting into power, like democratically, when, well, I'm not talking about in an authoritarian regime, then we have done something terribly wrong in our ability to persuade. And uh, so I don't know, so now do we become the tyrants and just well, force people? I, I suppose my argument would be, you know, I was just giving the alternative to the deplatforming, but... For me, this this conversation brings up the most important thing we can all do, and that is make sure that the institutions that we have in our society are so strong that they allow for difference and for constructive, civil, respectful debate. And when we see that not happening, I really do believe we're all at risk. We can't see it because it's so slow, it's so small, but we really do have to protect that. The podcast is Principle of Charity. It's hosted by Dr. Lloyd Vogelman and uh, Emil Sherman. Thanks to both of you, Ben. Thank you.
Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Seps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.